I just wonder what Ruth did to Joshua because I remember as Joshua judges Ruth. Um, if you get to the first and seconds, you've gone too far. Go back a little bit. You're only dealing with four chapters. Um, what I want to show us from Ruth chapter 3 this morning is that the life of faith involves action, right? Strategic, risky, righteous action. Like Nathan just read for us, right? Abel offered, Enoch was taken, Noah built, Abraham went, Sarah conceived. Often the picture of faith we have is of somebody who kind of sits back passively and trusts the Lord, and we call their passivity faith, right? But we saw last week in, in Ruth chapter 2 that God works his kindness through our kindness, and his promises often come to pass not by us sitting back and relaxing, but as a result of our actions. There's a, there's a story of a man that lived by the river. And he heard on the radio one day that the, the, the river was going to rush up and flood the town and that all the residents should evacuate. But the man said, I'm religious. I pray. God loves me. God will save me. So the water started rising, and the guy in the rowboat came along. And he shouted, hey, hey, you, come on. The town's flooding. Let me take you to safety. Be safety. But the man shouted back, I'm religious. I pray. God loves me. God will save me. And a helicopter was hovering overhead, and, and a guy with a megaphone shouted down and said, hey, hey, you, the, the, the town's flooding. Let me drop this ladder and take you to safety. But the man shouted back that he was religious, that he prayed that God loved him and God would take care of him. Well, the man ended up drowning, and he gets to the gates of St. Peter, and he demands an audience with God. He says, Lord, he's, I, I'm a religious man. I pray. I thought you loved me. Why did this happen? And God replies to the man, I sent you a radio report, a helicopter, and a guy in a rowboat. What are you even doing here? And, I mean, theological issues aside, right, I, I stole that from a priest on the West Wing, um, the, the, the point is right. Faith often involves action. Faith doesn't just stand there. It does something. Faith that doesn't act is suspect. I'm not saying it's not authentic faith, but it's maybe a faith that should be examined. If your faith leaves you in a flooded town instead of capitalizing on God's providential provisions, then maybe it's not true faith at all. But the thing is, God's providential provisions are always risky, aren't they? And so faith takes risks. Not reckless risk, rather a risk based on God's word, his wisdom, and his righteousness. That's what we're going to see in Ruth chapter 3, a chapter I'm simply calling risking, right? Now, I got to tell you up front, Ruth 3 is by far the most difficult chapter of the book of Ruth. Um, it's actually one of the more difficult texts that you have to wrestle with in the Old Testament to figure out what's going on. And the confusion of this chapter really stands out because Ruth 1 and 2, the, the story's been really straightforward so far, right? You have Naomi, you have her husband, they live in Bethlehem, there's a famine, so they go to an enemy land, Moab, with her two sons. And while they're there, Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die. And so she's stuck in an enemy land in Moab with her two daughter-in-laws. And so she says, well, I've heard there's food in Bethlehem. I'm going home. You guys go back to your houses where you can have a happy life in Moab. And one of the, the daughters-in-law, she, she does what's logical. She goes back home. 
but not Ruth. Ruth converts. She says, I want your God to be my God and your people to be my people. I'm going to stay with you no matter what. And so she clings to Naomi and her God and her people. And she comes back to Bethlehem. In chapter 2, Ruth goes out to find food for her and for her mother-in-law. And she's hoping that she might find favor in some field in Bethlehem. And she finds far more than favor, right? She finds Boaz in a field in Bethlehem. And he just liberally pours out blessing onto Ruth. She's out scavenging for pop cans, if you will. And she comes home with about two weeks of wages, about 30 pounds of barley flour to, you know, get her and her mother-in-law through the night on 30 pounds of flour. And then she gets an invitation. Hey, come back here every day of the harvest, and you can do this again. Naomi's ecstatic by this. Not, not just because they're not going to starve tonight, uh, but she remembers that Boaz is a relative. He's a redeemer. That is, he's one who's called by God to take care of the widows in his family. There's hope for our widows. Naomi and Ruth, they might not starve penniless and alone, but they might be redeemed. They might be protected and provided for and loved. And so as we enter into chapter 3, we're about two months down the road from the end of chapter 2. And it seems nothing's happened with Ruth and Boaz. And so by faith, Naomi's not just going to sit back and drown by faith, if you will. Uh, she's going to capitalize on God's providential provisions. And chapter 3 tells us the plan, verses 1 through 5, tells us the man, verses 6 through 13, and it tells us the span, verses 14 through 18, which span is a bad word, but I couldn't make it rhyme otherwise. I'll, I'll explain it when we get to verse 14. And so th in these three sections, the plan, the man, the span, uh, it will show us that faith takes risks based on God's word, wisdom, and righteousness. So here we go. Let's, let's read chapter 3 of Ruth together. It starts this way. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But 
he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said to her, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the chapter of Ruth that I approach with the most trepidation. Because there's not consistent agreement on what, what it's getting at, right? Scholars disagree about what we should think of Naomi's plan and the man and the span. It, is, it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it ugly? Is it maybe a mix of the three? And, and our narrator doesn't step in and help us, right? If you remember last week at the beginning of chapter 2, before we get introduced to Boaz, our narrator says there's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech named Boaz. He, he kind of gives us an introduction. Uh, next week we'll be in the audience for some guy to take off his sandal and give it to Boaz. And you're like, what? What's going on here? And the narrator says, this is how business was done back then. Don't worry about it. Just keep reading. It's fine. And you're like, oh, I guess I don't need to worry about this little flip-flop passing ceremony. Uh, but our narrator in chapter 3 is just, he's silent. He doesn't step in and help us. We're kind of just thrown into confusion and into chaos. And, and our narrator, he wants us to struggle a little bit. He doesn't want to throw a life preserver. So as we're swimming and trying to keep our head above water in the sea of chaos, um, we, we don't know what's happening. We feel the trepidation, kind of the worry, the risk, the confusion that Naomi and Ruth surely did as well. Because even, even the language used, we don't really see this in, in the English translation, but it's all ambiguous. I counted somewhere between 10 and 14 double entendres in, in a text, where it's just like, does this mean something completely righteous and holy? Or is this scandalous and perverse? Uh, it, 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 it could be either way. So threshing floors, where the whole thing takes place. Like, if you look throughout Scripture, if you open your concordance, I mean, the most common use of threshing floors is to thresh out the grain. That's what they're built for. Um, but other times, they're places of holy worship. If you remember, David purchased a threshing floor to worship, and then he built a temple on it. It's the threshing floor. Or you read places like Hosea, and you see this is a key area where prostitutes will make their living, on the threshing floors. And so, so there's a range of interpretations here. We, we can talk about all the different opinions later, um, I mean, <laughs> I've talked to Joel this month so much about the book of Ruth because sermons get about 3% of what's in my brain. Um, and, like, the rest of this needs to, you know, be discussed with someone. But, but I'm convinced, as I already said, that chapter 3 is all about faith. It's teaching us that faith takes risks based on God's word, wisdom, and righteousness. So let me show you this. We'll start in uh, 
with the plan, which is verses one through five, right? So I mentioned earlier, we're about two months down the road from the end of chapter two. Um, and chapter two ended with that glimmer of hope. Hey, Boaz is a redeemer. Maybe he'll marry Ruth and he'll provide for our family. But after two months, it seems that glimmer has faded, right? Nothing's happening. Nothing's pushed that marriage forward. Now that there hasn't been significant developments in, in those two months, um, I mean, look at just what Naomi says in verse 1. She says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? I mean, think about where Naomi was in chapter 1. She was bitter. Don't even call me Naomi, sweetness. Call me Mara, bitter. She ignores Ruth completely. I came back empty. Ruth is nothing to me. And then in chapter 2, she begins to bless God. And now, by chapter 3, she's not concerned with her own welfare anymore. She's completely focused on Ruth. She's even gone from calling Ruth nothing to my daughter-in-law, and now she's just my daughter in chapter 3. She's gone from being completely self-focused to, as uh, Philippians 2 would say, humbly counting others more significant than herself. Looking out not for Naomi's interests, but the interests of others. And look, she's calling Ruth my daughter, right? Naomi's moving from bitterness to blessing. Ruth is moving from worthlessness to worthy in her eyes. And this concern for Ruth's well-being, for her rest, for her long-term care, leads Naomi to hatch a plan, right? She knows Boaz is down at the, at the winnowing floor winnowing his barley tonight, which means he's going to sleep at the winnowing floor. Um, maybe because he's working late and you want to harvest until dark and then a, the crack of dawn in the morning. Uh, but it's more, the, more likely that, um, you know, they finish the work and then Boaz and all his employees have a feast. They have some wine. They have a little celebration of the hard day's work. And then they go to sleep on the piles of grain to protect them from thieves, right? It's the time of the judges. You can't trust your neighbor to, to respect your grain and not steal it. And so verse 3, Ruth is to wash, anoint, put on perfume, put on her cloak, and secretly go down to the threshing floor. Which those specific instructions are curious as well. Because, again, it's not clear. What, what, why? Why does she do this? I mean, on the one hand, she's going to seduce Boaz at the threshing floor. Why else are you taking a shower, putting on perfume, and changing your clothes? On the other hand, in 2 Samuel, as soon as David's son dies, the text uses these exact same words. He washes, he anoints himself, he puts on a new cloak, and he goes down to worship God. So what's she doing? Is she going to sin? Is she going to worship it's, it's not clear in the text. We think at bare minimum, we want to say that this shows that Ruth sees this as an important event. Well, it's, it's worth taking a shower for. And it shows that her time of mourning for her late husband is over. She's, she's back in the game, if you will. And so Naomi continues to lay out this plan. Wait till Boaz is jolly with wine and food. He's happy. He is kind of relieved from the stress of a hard day and sneak in. Just capitalize on the good situation, right? Don't carry this plan out when he's stressed in the fields, just baking in the sun. Wait till he's had his little celebration, had some wine. I mean, I get this. It's, it's not a coincidence that I called Chrissy's dad to ask for 
his blessing and marrying her about 15 minutes after the University of Kentucky won a basketball game, like a championship game. I waited till March. I knew, I knew how to do this. You know, it's, it's good planning. Um, so after Boaz is asleep, sneak over to him, uncover his feet. I think, again, ambiguous of how much to uncover. And then lay with him, by him, just lie there. Don't worry about it, Ruth, she says. Boaz will tell you what to do. Look at verse 5, right? And then for some reason, I guess because of her risky faith, Ruth agrees to this plan. All that you say I will do. I mean, given the first four verses, it seems to me there's a really fine line between faith and foolishness, right? Um, Naomi's plan to care for Ruth is advice I would never, ever give to my daughter. You probably wouldn't either, right? If a, as, you know, I'm a youth pastor. If a, if a girl comes to me and says, Pastor Dan, how do I get a boy to notice me? I promise you, I will never say, well, let's open the Ruth chapter 3 and see, you know, God's plan for dating. That, that's not what this is. We, when we just have the plan, there's so much confusion. I mean, the big question of chapter 3 is, will the plan work? But in verses 1 through 5, we're asking, what even is the plan, right? You're probably feeling the confusion of this chapter that I've been dealing with for months now. I mean, I've read this text countless times, and I'm still filled with suspense of what's going to happen. You know, will the girl get the boy, or will things go terribly wrong? I've said it once, I'll say it again. Like, the book of Ruth is written exceptionally well and beautifully. Uh, one author says, we know the outcome, and we still tremble. And so does great art know how to make one forget. And so while Naomi's plan is risky, it's not reckless. It's not risque. Because Naomi's plan is faith-founded and is based on God's word, wisdom, and righteousness. What do I mean? I keep saying those three terms. So it's based on God's word, right? Boaz is a redeemer. He's not just some random guy that Ruth met in a field. No, he, he's given the privilege and the responsibility by God in Deuteronomy 25 to show covenantal kindness to Ruth, to Naomi, to their, their late husbands. He, he's tasked to reflect God's loving kindness and loving care. And so it's a, it's a scheme based on principles in God's word that are coming to play in reality. And it's based on wisdom, right? We're convinced nothing good happens after midnight, but Naomi actually uses the cover of darkness to protect and to honor Ruth and Boaz. I mean, it's a scandalous thing for a woman to propose to a man, for someone younger to propose to someone older, for a servant to propose to a landowner, for a foreigner to propose to an Israelite. So what's Ruth going to do to move this marriage along? Just in the fields in broad daylight, get down on her knee and ask Boaz? Like, that's not an option. This encounter has to happen in private. So she honors both Boaz and protects Ruth in this plan. And it's based on righteousness. Naomi knows what's going to happen, or what's not going to happen, I should say. Boaz's character is known at this point. In chapter 2, we're told he's a worthy man. He's righteous. And then through the rest of the chapter, we see how much he honors Ruth in the field, how God-saturated he is, how generous, and how he has a love for the foreigner and the widow and his lavish, sacrificial kindness and his respect for Ruth. So the key risk, it seems, isn't, you know, the obvious risk, but rather the reputations of Boaz and Ruth are on the line. 
I mean, if she's caught in this, she could be assaulted. She could be killed. She could be deported back to Moab, leaving her alone and penniless, and the same for Naomi. And why Boaz, we know his character. He's righteous. We don't know anything about the other five dozen men sleeping on the threshing floor. And more than that, there's this, this risk that the plan might not work out, that, that Boaz rejects her, right? That, that she has one shot at redemption, and we have one wrong move that could seal her fate. I mean, but by faith, Ruth is willing to risk it all, that maybe the plan will succeed, and Boaz will marry her. So that's the plan. Now let's move to 6 through 13 and look at the man. Look how Boaz responds. Look at, look at verse 6 here. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And the idea of uncovering his feet is a way to wake up Boaz silently in the night without waking up everyone else, right? She pulls the blanket off her his feet. I mean, maybe this is subtly saying, I want to be your wife, and I'm just already stealing the covers. Uh, but, but when the midnight wind comes through the barns, through the fleshing floor, and the shiver goes up Boaz's spine, he goes and he grabs his blanket back to cover his feet. But, but when he reaches over and grabs, he doesn't find his blanket. He finds a woman instead. Look at verse 8. Who are you? He whispers. I'm Ruth, your servant. And that's where Naomi's instructions stop, right? She says, and he'll tell you what to do. But that's not where Ruth stops. She continues, she says to, to Boaz, redeem me, marry me, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth begs him, the prayer you prayed for me back in chapter 2, verse 12, where you said, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come and take refuge? She says, be the answer to your own prayer. Spread your wings over me as I find refuge under God's wings. Be my reward. Be my refuge. Redeem me. Marry me. Care for me. Continue Elimelech's name. Continue Malon's legacy. Take care of my mother-in-law, Naomi. Spread your wings over me, Boaz, for you are a redeemer. Ruth, in this proposal, she is filled to the brim with selfless, loving kindness. Kindness that reflects her God. And Boaz sees it. She's not here for just a, a single night of romance. She's here because she's committed to the Lord. She's committed to his people. And she's committed to care for aging Naomi. I mean, people try and paint this scene all the time as just this grand romantic gesture, like, the B.C. version of blasting Peter Gabriel from your boombox. And, and, and it's true. Ruth is drawn towards, or Boaz is drawn towards Ruth, but what attracts him to her is Ruth's godliness. She is beautiful because she's a reflection of the beauty of our Lord's kindness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. I, we, we see this plainly in verse 10. He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you have made this kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So, so Ruth's first kindness was forsaking 
everything she knew, her family, her land, her language, her home in Moab, and converting to follow God and follow Naomi and to care for her. A kindness that Boaz rewarded in his fields with grain. But he says this kindness is even greater. Instead of pursuing young men, men her own age, she pursues Boaz, an old man, because she knows he will care for Naomi. I mean, he calls her daughter, just like Naomi did in verse 1, probably signifying that, that Boaz and Naomi are of the same generation, and Ruth is, is younger. And he says, you didn't, you didn't look for a young man, maybe one with more means, one with energy, one with fertility that could promise you a family. You came after me. You came after me because you care for your mother-in-law, Naomi. And so she proposes to Boaz in no uncertain terms, redeem me. And Boaz comforts her in this risk. Ruth has no idea what he's going to do, but he says, do not fear. It was a faith-fueled risk, and it paid off. Everyone knows that you're worthy, and you're right. I am a redeemer, so I'm going to do what's right. Look at the end of verse 12, though. What's right for Boaz is also inconvenient for Ruth. It's a, it's a righteousness that might ruin the entire enterprise. I mean, we're finally getting resolution in Ruth's story. What's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to Naomi? And Boaz says, yes, I'll marry you, except there's a redeemer nearer than I. So similar how an inheritance doesn't go to the third cousins twice removed before it would go to somebody's kids or grandkids, uh, there's an order of redemption in Israel. So the brother-in-law has the first chance to redeem a wife, or a widow, I should say, the land, the, the, the farm, and then it kind of moves out from there. And so Boaz is pretty far down the line, but slightly closer is this other guy. So Boaz isn't about to take something that's not his. So now in Boaz's pesky righteousness, he insists on doing what's right. Not only right by Ruth and Naomi, but what's right by this mystery man and, and by God. I mean, I said I wouldn't give dating advice from Ruth chapter 3, but isn't this the kind of man that we want our kids to marry or to become for, for our own spouses? One like Boaz, who's committed to honoring God no matter what the consequences might be. Or, or a woman like Ruth, who's kind, who's loving, who's faithful, who will risk her own well-being to care for others. One like Jesus Christ, to whom they both point, the, the God-man who exemplifies righteous love and risky devotion for his people. The call of this is to be righteous, even when it's inconvenient, even when we don't like the prospect of the results. Faith is risky, but we trust God and we do what he says. That's wise, and, and that's righteous. But even in the risk here, Boaz gives an assurance to Ruth. He says, you will be redeemed. You will be married. If he won't marry you, I will. So lay down and sleep. This is where your sadness ends. Tomorrow, you will be married, and you will be redeemed. Tomorrow, you are finding your husband. I mean, we thought we had our answer, and Ruth's faith-filled risk. And in one sense, it paid off. She's going to be redeemed. 
But in another sense, we, we, it, it's far more complicated. We don't know if she's going to be married by Boaz or eligible, eligible bachelor number two. Like, it, it, it's a mystery still. I mean, life's never clean when we're taking faith-filled risks, is it? I mean, you don't do something and you instantly find out, oh, that was a good decision or that was a bad decision. It's always more complicated than that. There's always ambiguity and, and loose ends. And in the book of Ruth, we see God's kind providence, not just some clinical formula of how God runs the universe so we can predict his every move, um, but just how it plays out in everyday life. I mean, sometimes it ends well, sometimes it ends poorly. But we don't judge faith by results. Otherwise, we have a really hard time making sense of the cross. I mean, I, I, I wanted Nathan to read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 this morning, but 40-some verses meant a shorter sermon. And, well, l- let me just tell you how that chapter ends because I, I took the time for myself. So when we continue the chronicle in Hebrews 11, the, the life of faith in, in church's history, the preacher says, starting in verse 32, he says, after listing out so many people, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then still by faith, he says, some were tortured, refusing to accept relief. So they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth taking a risk of faith. It it doesn't guarantee pleasant, easy results. That's what makes it risky. But we don't ever judge one's faith by the results of their risk, right? Because when we look at Jesus Christ, the most faithful man alive who ever lived, his faith ended on a Roman cross. And often ours will too. But it doesn't really end on the cross. After the suffering comes his resurrection and his glory, and so will ours. You know, when we talk about risk in the Bible, we, we really need to have a nuance to our conversation, right? I, I've heard so many bad sermons, if I can say that, about risky faith, where it says, God's calling you to something, follow him and do it. And, and that could be right, right? I mean, there's, there's this one kind of faith that's called Abraham's faith, where God says to Abraham, get up, leave your family, leave your home, follow me, I will show you where to go. And Abraham says, yup, let's go. And he grabs his family and, and, you know, a couple sheep, and he follows after God, and God leads him. He trusts and obeys. That's faith. That's risky faith. But then there's another kind of faith. faith. Let's call it Esther's faith, right? where the entire existence of the Jewish people is hanging on Esther's next move, right? There's, there's a threat of genocide. So God says to Esther, nothing. So Esther 
has to make a risky decision of what do I do without a clear leading of God? How do I rely on his word and on his wisdom and on his righteousness and figure out what faith looks like in this situation? Abraham gets to say, I heard God speak to me, and so I have confidence stepping out in faith. Esther doesn't get that privilege. She gets to say, I don't know if this is the right move, the best move, the wisest move, but given what God's given me, his word, his wisdom, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to step forward in risky faith. This might be where the king executes me, or this might be where God saves his people. I'll tell you, I would rather be in Abraham's situation any day of the week, right? Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. But if I was Esther, I would second-guess myself every step of the way. I know that because whenever I'm called to step out on risky faith, I second-guess myself every step of the way, right? Is this the right move? Is this the best move? Is this the wisest move? Am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Should I get more counsel on this? Am I too aggressive, too passive? Should I, should I you know, do a second draft before I send that message? You know, I, I know that faith requires risk, but risk can be paralyzing, can't it? I mean, Ruth's situation is far more like Esther's than Abraham's, and so is yours. We're, we're not given clear instructions of what to do in every single situation of our lives, where to live and who to marry and what job to take, and when do we trust the doctor or when do we demand the second opinion. I, I think our impulse of faith is, I want a word from the Lord here so I know exactly what to do. Or at least I want a word from the Lord so I can mitigate my own responsibility if this goes south, right? If, if God called me to this, I can blame him for my failure. If this is my own wisdom and righteousness based on God's word, then I'm to blame. It, I mean, isn't at least some of our distress over college choices and career choices? I mean, sure, it's to please God. But also, we, we want to know how it ends so we don't have to take the risk of faith. We want to be assured of our success. But Hebrews 11 already told us, faithfulness doesn't equate with success, at least worldly success. And earlier in, <coughs> in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told if you're looking for Abraham's faith, that, that situation doesn't exist anymore. In former days, God spoke by the prophets and in various ways. But in these last days, in our times, he's spoken by his son. If we're going to receive a word from the Lord, it's going to come out of this book, not a voice from heaven. And so we're all in Ruth's situation, in Esther's situation. We don't have clear, particular, individualized guidance. Instead, we know God's word. We, we study the book. We figure out, what does God command of me? What does God prioritize in my life? We use God's wisdom, and we know, if I lack wisdom— then James says to ask of the Lord, and he will give it liberally to us. And without reproach. God doesn't, he's not harsh towards us because we don't have wisdom. He gives it gladly. And we cultivate righteousness, pure hands and pure hearts, so that as we act, we can have confidence we're doing this for the right reasons and not for sinful motives. And then based on that, we step out in faith. And we do what seems best, what seems right even though it's a risky step of faith. Faith acts, but it's a risk because we don't know if we're going to be received. We don't know what's going to happen. 
we don't know if we're doing the right thing or the best thing, but we can't be paralyzed by it, can we? We have to do something. I find Corrie Ten Boom's words so helpful here. She says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So we trust God in the unknowns, and we act on our faith. And sometimes, not all the time, but, but sometimes acting actually means waiting. We do everything we can, and then we wait to see how God works the results. I mean, we looked at the man and the plan. Look at, look at verse 14 through 18 as we consider the span. Um, what, what I'm considering here is the span of time between the risk and the results, right? It's, it's not a good word, but I wanted it to rhyme. Um, I'm like, what's the third point? The man, the span, the third point by Dan? Like, it just doesn't work. And so, so just like Ruth protected Boaz's reputation by coming in secret, Boaz protects Ruth's reputation now by sending her home in secret before the daylight, before she'd be recognized. And he doesn't send her away empty-handed. Look at verse, verse, verse 15 here. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. Don't quite know how much barley this is. It's literally six of barley. Um, it probably means six sayas of barley coming out to somewhere between like 60 and 94 pounds of flour on her shoulders. I mean, it's significant enough that the text says that he put it on her. It's not something that Ruth can lift up and throw over sh her shoulders, but that, Ru that Boaz has to put it on her to carry it home. Um, just this massive amount of grain. And this way, if she gets caught on the walk from the threshing floor back to her house, it's not assumed that she spent the night with Boaz. Rather, her, her visit's legitimized, right? Someone assumes, oh, wow, Ruth was working all night, and she's just now coming home with quite a harvest. Or maybe, well, Ruth's up early going to the grocery store, and look at what she's coming home with from the market. But more than just legitimizing it, there's, there's, a, there's another reason. Look at verse 16. Look at what Ruth tells Naomi. When she came home to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi's taken risks. This, this book of Ruth starts with Naomi's risk. A unwise, unrighteous, unfaithful risk of going to Moab to find food. And when she came back, the Lord brought her back empty out of her faithless life in Moab. There's no way Boaz is going to reward Ruth's faith-filled risk by letting her come back empty. He says, no, you may not go back empty-handed. Here is a ton of grain for your mother-in-law. And more than that, this is, a, this is a down payment. This is a guarantee that I will redeem you. I mean, Naomi understands the meaning. She understands what kind of man Boaz is. Look at verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The whole scene started in verse 1 when, when Naomi says, 
Ruth, I'm going to find you rest. And it ends with her saying, Boaz will not rest until this, this matter is settled. We will figure out what happens today. Well, we will figure out what happens next week in chapter 4. But, because, but that, that's where it ends. We're, we're left on the cliffhanger. But I'm actually really happy to leave us waiting to see how the book of Ruth ends. Because somewhere between Ruth chapter 3 and Ruth chapter 4 is where we all live most of our lives. We have a redeemer who hasn't fully redeemed us yet. We have a savior who hasn't fully saved us yet. I mean, I'm not making light of the cross of Christ or saying anything negative about Jesus. I'm, I'm just pointing out God's timeline. Jesus promises to save us from the final judgment, and the final judgment hasn't arrived. We experience day by day that risky faith. We're trusting by faith that there is indeed salvation to come, that Jesus isn't lying to us, that he's not going to leave us. I mean, Romans 8 says it this way. It says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, and hope that is not seen, or, and hope that is seen is not hope. It's not hope if you can see it. And so we have this down payment, this guarantee of redemption. That's, that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. He guarantees our salvation, just like the grain did for Ruth. He exists as a seal, saying there's more to come. He's the first fruit. We don't have the fullness of salvation yet. That's still to come. But we receive it by faith and in faith, in, in risky faith, right? We have to trust that the Lord Jesus is who he says he is and that he is trustworthy, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, not to abandon us or just to, to lie in a grave for all eternity. No, that he is worthy, that he will come and redeem us. For now we have a down payment and we wait. I mean, this is all over the New Testament. Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Second Peter 3, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Jude 21, we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews 9 tells us, Jesus have been, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And James tells us in chapter 5, be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We've been told the risky, faith-fueled, faith-founded plan, a plan of life that comes through death, of glory that comes through crucifixion, of crown that comes through a cross, of righteousness through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And so we trust the man. We trust the Lord Jesus Christ that he will do what he says, that he has the ability and he has the character to redeem us and to keep his word. But now in this span of life, we wait between his first coming and his second coming, we wait as a bride waiting for her groom. And in the meantime, we walk by faith, 
which means taking risks according to his word and his wisdom and his righteousness. We walk by faith until we have the fullness of our redemption. When we are feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our long-awaited Redeemer. And when that day comes, there will no longer be risky faith for us because our faith will have turned to sight as we gaze into the eyes of our beloved Redeemer. But until then, we walk by risky faith.